Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This episode is brought to you by Yumiko. Founded in 2002, Yumiko creates long-lasting and great-fitting dance and athletic wear of the highest quality. What began as a small collection of leotard designs has grown into a phenomenon that has redefined the dancewear industry. To celebrate Yumiko's supportive conversations on dance and the launching of their two new leotard styles, we're excited to be announcing a special giveaway this week. Follow us on Instagram at Conversations on Dance and at Yumiko for details on how to enter to win a brand new leotard in one of their two new styles, Zoe or Daria. The winner will be able to select their choice of either two new models in the color choices displayed on the Yumiko website, yumiko.com. So click over now. And while you're there, be sure to explore all their beautiful leotard products. Now is the perfect time to experience the perfect fit of Yumiko dancewear products. Entries will be accepted on our Instagram through September 22nd at midnight Eastern Standard Time. The winner will be announced on September 23rd. Good luck. This episode is brought to you by the Town of Vale and hosted by Manor Vale Lodge, important partners of the 2018 Vale Dance Festival. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. This week on Conversations on Dance, we are bringing you a special bonus episode with one of our most frequent guests, Alistair McCauley. Today, Alistair has announced his decision to step down from his post as chief dance critic of the New York Times. In his years writing for the Times, Alistair's reviews became events unto themselves, illuminating the performances he saw for many avid readers. Today, we talk to Alistair about the artists whose performances most inspired him, courting controversy with Sugar Plum Gate, and what he'll miss most about the job that made him a hugely important figure in the dance world. So we're here at the Vale Dance Festival with Alistair. Uh, we've just recorded a little short interview about the festival itself, but um, the real reason we have you here, Alistair, is because you have some news that um, at this point will have hit the dance world, but um, we'd like to hear it from you yourself. <laughs> yes, here we are taping it in advance. 
my news, which I've broken to both the two of you in the last in recent weeks, is that I'll be leaving the New York Times. Uh, the announcement should go out. We currently plan for September 21st. Uh, but I won't be leaving until the end of the year. It's entirely at my wish, my request. And the New York Times has given me a special retainer, so I'll carry on writing for the first six months of next year, just a limited amount of pieces and for a limited, you know, I won't be on staff anymore. I'll just get sure. a certain income. So what were some of the things that made you decide that now was the time to move on from that post? I was beginning to feel newspapered out. Sometimes when you're writing three or more pieces a week, and back in the day there were times I wrote seven reviews, and it's not as bad now, but I'm older, um, <laughs> that also, you know, there are certain seasons, you think, how often can I review even the Paul Taylor season, which comes around annually, but you're looking off at the same masterpieces year after year. Mm. Um, there are choreographers who none of us hugely want to write about, but on the whole, they have to be written about now and then. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain ballets. How many Don Quixotes, La Corsairs, La Bayardes do I have left in me? And I'm afraid I've now got to the point of that with Swan Lake. I hope I'm happy to look at Swan Lake you know, maybe till I drop. Mm-hmm. But finding the words, and I've written two big, maybe three big Swan Lake pieces this last year, uh, and sometimes you think, I've said this a million times. Mm-hmm. I, <clears throat> that makes me think of something you said to me as you took me to see Swan Lake this yeah, year. Indeed, you saw a uh, very good one with Devin Touche. Yes, a very good one. And yet, um, even as I questioned whether or not a pr- production-wise, not in terms of individual performances, but production-wise, is there a Swan Lake that one can actually fully enjoy? And you said the worst Swan Lake is the one you're watching. <laughs> love- my, great, my great friend David David Vaughn coined that phrase oh, okay. years ago. The worst Swan Lake is the one you are watching, <laughs> and how often that is true. I feel very sorry for certainly audiences in America. And I should say there are people who think that the Peter Martin's production at City Ballet and the Kevin McKenzie one at American Ballet Theatre are Swan Lake. They think they're so great. Mm-hmm. I look and think audiences don't know. There are whole chunks that just aren't happening. There mm-hmm. are inner relationships. There are, of course, areas of choreography. So I feel very sad. I think I'll be feeling that around Europe too these days. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the new Liam Scarlet production. It's obviously very beautiful to look mm-hmm. at. But I've heard one or two things about it that made me thought, well, I think I might be more critical than most. <laughs> Which is, you know, I'm glad if people go to Swan Lake and believe in it. I mm-hmm. don't need to be the person who pontificates. And that's part of all the reason also why I want to move on. I, mm-hmm. I'm sure I will occasionally sound like the voice of God till I drop, but I don't need to do so in a newspaper mm-hmm. forever, you know. And I think I've been, I think I found plenty that I've liked recently. Uh, so I will be leaving on quite a high with plenty of right. enthusiasm. And that's a good point to mm-hmm. go. Right. So you've laid out some of the challenges of the job, but what have the greatest what have been the greatest pleasures you've taken in your your post? Pleasures. Travel's one of them. I like travel in life anyway. Mm-hmm. I knew when as the New York Times pursued me to offer me this job, which was very <laughs> flattering. And I loved my old job as a theater critic in the Financial Times. Um but I straight away thought, well, I know a large part of the story that I'm interested in taking is Balanchine around America. Mm-hmm. It's not just New York City Ballet, Balanchine and ABT doing its occasional Balanchine. I had seen the San Francisco company doing some very good Balanchine at Covent Garden. I'd, and they, I think they'd also done some at the Edinburgh Festival. Pacific Northwest, I'd certainly seen the Edinburgh Festival. Mm-hmm. We'd seen the Suzanne Farrell Ballet. I think maybe others, and I knew that they existed. So mm-hmm. I thought, just balancing across America, that's a story. Yeah. And 
the Times showed straight away that they were interested in me traveling. So I thought, right, go for it. And I'm glad I did a lot at the beginning because, of course, economics, I still do travel, but not the way I used to. It's, you know, no, no newspaper has the money it once had. And I'm glad that sometimes I just did it at a hunch because while I looked at those companies I've mentioned, probably others I've forgotten to mention, I think I saw the Boston Ballet do uh, jewels, for example. Um, and of course, I have mentioned Miami City Ballet. And I, I was waiting. waiting. Sorry. <laughs> and I, and I had seen them going back to 1988, so I certainly knew about Miami. Um, but the company I didn't know anything about was Ballet Arizona, directed by Ib Anderson. But I thought... He was there with Robinson Balanchine. He, they both created ballets on him. His staging a triple bill, I think it was to vet him into 15, the four temperaments, and maybe it's symphony and three movements. So I just go for it. And I managed to get out there in 2010. And then quite by chance, I was in Washington. Two weeks later, I saw one of his ballets in the Kennedy Center. And then I went back on my Nutcracker Marathon to see his Nutcracker. And I thought, oh, this is important, what's going on there. And I... You know, I'm very proud to put someone like that on the map. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going there in September, so now you made me even more excited. Uh, I'd love to know. Are you just going briefly? or you? I'm staging increases there. Oh, I wonder. So Tell, I'll I be really with the dancers for a month. like in those contexts. Yeah. yeah. I'm excited That'd to find great. out. So as we um, continue to talk about your time as the chief dance critic, I would like to also hear the story which you've told me before about how you got the position to start with. Oh, well, I began as a dance critic. Um, but I was always interested in other performing arts, which is another reason I want to change my life. I would want to see more theatre and opera and also have a few nights off. Yeah, <laughs> go to bed early. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, uh, when I joined the Financial Times, I was actually feeling a bit danced out then. Uh, and they took me on as their second critic. And after a while, they said, look, we can't promote you as a dance critic, because Clement Crisp has been with us for mm. decades, we wouldn't, and I said, no, I love Clement, I wouldn't want, you know, to steal on his terrain. But they gave me some music. And for me, music, classical music is the holy art. It's the area where you most readily touch on the sublime. Mm. So to just to do a few music reviews was a thrill. And I got some really great ones that they gave me. Um, I suppose I know more about opera, but they gave me chamber music and class and concert music too. So that was a thrill. But then after a year, they said, well, we can't promote you in music either because we've got five music critics. And I said, <laughs> I, and I really revere your music uh -huh. critics. I learned from this. I wouldn't want to poach on them. Then they said, we suddenly need a full-time theatre critic. So they gave me theatre, which was a thrill. And I really did that for the next 17 years. And after the first four years, they made me their chief theatre critic. And then the phone went, um, and it was one of your interviewees, Bob Gottlieb, um, who had been in touch with a mutual friend, Chip McGrath. Bob knows Chip far more than I do. They'd worked together at The New Yorker, which is where I had met Chip, because along the line I had twice been the guest critic for The New Yorker. I never knew him at all well. And Bob said, oh, I've just been talking to Chip, and they need a dance critic at the time. John Rockwell is leaving and leaving quite fast. He's just found the right moment to get the right pension deal. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and John had been at the Times for 30 years. A uh, very, very nice man. Um, so Bob said, well, they asked me to give some suggestions, and I thought, and I'm, he'd just seen me a week or so before. And uh, he said, I'm thinking, I want to know if I could suggest you. And I remember at the time thinking, they're never going to offer it to me. No way, because they want, uh, they'll want an American. But I thought, if I handle this well, and I never handle this well, <laughs> then I might at least get a pay rise out of the financial time because I hadn't had one for a few years. Yeah. Uh, and I could have used one. Um, 
And these are the only times that you ever get to do these negotiations in journalism. Um, so that was Bob, and then Chip called me and we discussed some further. And he was very good about the times and made me find it a more attractive job than I'd imagined. And then he called me back a week later and he said, Alistair, we just want you to know that we've been thinking about it all and we want you to know that you are way top of our list. So that, oh, I was not <laughs> expecting that. And then he went straight on and said, however, we do need to know whether you're actually interested in the job or whether you just want to pay rise out of the financial times. <laughs> <laughs> so I laughed and I said, well, I could use one. Um, and I said, you're not talking money to me either. So I haven't a clue what we're really talking about in these terms. But... The demographics have changed at the Financial Times while I've been here. And really, since the year 2000, I only hear from interested parties. And I think if I came to the New York Times, I'm a communicator, and I think I would hear from readers, ordinary readers. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> Chip said, yes, we have readers. <laughs> we certainly have readers. I'm not sure I'm always grateful for them, uh, which made me laugh. Uh, and then it went on. It took three months before they finally offered me the job. They flew me over for interviews and so forth. Uh, and I think everything about that period made me respect the New York Times a great deal. Um, you know, I, I also have had very mixed feelings about giving up the FT right to the moment the offer came. I did not know what I, my decision was. Mm. And I truly went into a fever and I had to take to my bed. For, <laughs> I think I did have flu. Uh, <laughs> it just threw me into a fever for 24 hours. Um, and then I thought, okay, you've been thinking about this for three months tell yourself you're going to take the job and then see if that feels bad. So I just went through the weekend thinking about it. And the Times had said, this was very interesting. There was a lovely man who was then the culture editor at the Times, Sam Sifton. And he said, you can ask me any question by email or even phone. I'm at a conference in Miami um, over this weekend, but let's come to a decision early in the week. And the, I only asked him one question, which was, do you have any idea how many severe reviews I would write. Because the New York Times had a reputation. I don't know with John. I didn't read much of John's work, to be truthful, in those days. But it had a reputation under Anna Kislegoff, his predecessor. I think she was the chief critic for 27 years. Phenomenal. Um, very knowledgeable. I was just looking at one of her Paul Taylor's reviews this morning. You know, really expert. But Anna's style was to enthuse and sound positive about most things. Once you knew her real favorites and her less favorites, you could understand the code language, which mm -hmm. meant, I don't really like this. But it was mm -hmm. obliquely done. Right. Uh, so it felt that she was in the business of trying to support the art. Now I've been doing the job for many years, I quite understand if that was how Anna felt, because you have this terrific sense of responsibility if the, mm -hmm. you're the critic of the Times. But but that's not me. Mm -hmm. I thought, I'm just going to hate some things and I'm going to blast, and I have to have a paper that will let me blast. Mm -hmm. And Sam came straight back saying, that's exactly what I want. I don't want any of my critics soft-soaping anything. Mm -hmm. And I thought straight away, fine, I can work with this man, which I could straight away. Um, and I deliberately, in my first month, wrote one or two reviews as angry and as furiously as I could, just to test the waters, not just with a paper, but also with the readers. Mm. And I did cause up a storm, and I was doing it quite purposefully. There were pieces I really didn't like, but I thought, do I could either do this in a relatively mild voice, or I can just boom. Um, and I did the boom in a way that I've almost never done since. <laughs> <laughs> it's a one-time thing. You also can do it while you're a stranger in town. The truth is now, you know, I've been looking at so many companies again and again, and you, you know, you start to feel less 
distance from everybody, mm-hmm. you know. Sure. Which is probably another reason for me to move on now, isn't <laughs> it? You know, it starts to feel a little like family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've you've told me in the past that you have some rules that you've set for yourself um in terms of when you go to the ballet and or any any dance that you see and you have rules in terms of who you communicate with who you don't that you don't talk about the ballet can you tell us a little bit oh, about I see. that of, of actually who, well on the whole I try not to meet the dancers or the choreographers I write about or mm-hmm. the artistic directors now it's a small world so you do end up I live in Brooklyn Heights so I've bumped into certain dancers in Brooklyn Heights and occasionally you're just happy to sue each other so you mm. say oh, let's have coffee or whatever you know mm. that's lovely um, and I like talking shop um, mm-hmm. not shop actually you know where are you going on holiday all of that's a pleasure but it's with <laughs> the very few dancers and on the whole it's accident which ones you get to know mm-hmm. um, I suppose I see New York City Ballet more than any other company and I found in my first two three years in the job we used to be sitting all the critics in the first row Peter Martins would always sit himself six rows or something behind me but mm-hmm. absolutely directly behind and I, when I'd been the New Yorker, he'd also been actually sometimes in the seat behind me. And we never spoke in those days. And now I was in this job, we never spoke. Mm-hmm. His press officer would occasionally come to say, you know, I'm sure it'd be great if you'd like to meet Peter. And I thought, okay, decision time. Actually, no, it was before this. It was with Helgit and Marston of San mm-hmm. Francisco Ballet. Mm-hmm. When I was really new at the job, he's a very nice press lady. Um, Kira Jablonski, I think she called me and said, Helgi's going to be in town. Would you like to meet him? And I know Helgi and Anna Kisselgoff knew each other. So I thought, is this a tradition? How should I handle this? Right. So I went to Sam and said, Helgi Tomarsson's coming to town. Should I meet him for tea? And Sam said, no. Do you want to meet him? So I said, no. <laughs> so I just called Kira back and said, no, I'm not going to handle it that way. Then I had this conversation with the press person, Rob Daniels, who I love, at City Ballet. And I just said, I have no intentions of meeting Peter Martins. So we then, then three years later, we all moved down to the ground floor at City Ballet. I think you both sat there on that ground floor with me. And Peter Martin's no longer directly behind me, but diagonally behind me, <laughs> with a very clear view of me. And we never met. I so often walked past his seat. Um, very, very strange. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I think, once briefly met Kevin McKenzie at an official function. It's really when I was the star after presenting on Swan Lake at the library. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe Sleeping Beauty, actually. And he just came out very briefly and said, perfect remark, and then moved on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I once interviewed him because I was breaking the news of David Holberg joining the Bolshoi. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do an interview with him, just, you know, what he thought of David Holberg. And he handled it perfectly, but it was professional and mm-hmm. there was no schmoozing after that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I, I think particularly in this job, it helps not to schmooze. Mm-hmm. So that, um, you know, we've, because we're in Vail, we've just been talking in another interview, say, about Tyler Peck. Um, at the moment, Tyler Peck's on such a high and such an exemplary dancer for everybody. I've occasionally gone through periods of having reservations about Tyler Peck. I may go through future periods of having reservations about Tyler Peck. It helps not to know Tyler Peck to write mm. those things. Right. You know? Yeah. It's true. When you know someone, you automatically see their dancing differently. Like right. if you really like someone, you want to encourage them and feel happy for them for their successes. So I can see how it w- yeah, could skew like, your views. No, yeah. I've never met Justin Peck. We did an email interview, which was a pleasure. But again, objective. Once the interview was over, nothing more between us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same with Ratmansky. 
I have to say, I thought the world around Mansky because there were three months of very specialist questions from me about <laughs> Sleeping Beauty, and he gave perfect answers. Uh, and I th- at the end, you know, he was cool. You didn't know what he felt about them. At the end, he just said, thanks for fabulous questions. And I was so <laughs> moved. But otherwise, we, have, we, we, you know, we know each other to say hello in four years. Sure. So, and I think I, one of my little proud accomplishments is I think my first event at the library. You know I'm very proud of my events that I've done at the library. My first mm-hmm. time with you was talking about the serenade. We began with Sleeping Beauty. Ratmansky was in the audience. Huh. And he didn't know me, but he did say to Robert Greskovic, who was one of my co-presenters, he thought it was terrific. And I think it was after that that he started to go into the notation for Sleeping Beauty. Huh. And then the next one we did was Swan Lake. And I did meet him at the dinner after the Swan Lake event, and we were kind of on either side of the main hostess, Anne Bass, and we talked. She invited us to talk across her, and he was lovely, just talking about dance in a wonderful way, and about Russia, very movingly. Um, but I said something about Swan Lake to him, and he said, you know, I thought this was never one of my ballets. I had no interest in staging it. But after this night, I wonder. <laughs> and guess what? Within two years, he'd presented his, his Swan Lake at the Zurich Ballet and La Scala. So... Yes, I've had a little influence. I feel very proud of that. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I think you have a lot of influence. I think you underplay that a lot. Well, I feel nervous about this being a powerful job. It's right. always seen as being a powerful job. The truth is, I've sometimes been in the theatre now called New York Live Arts. It seats 400 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it reopened as New York Live Arts, it opened with a French-Algerian choreographer, I think, uh, called Rashid Uramdan. I'd already seen his work, raved about it. Went to his opening night, it was sensational. A really remarkable example of political dance about the effects, really, of um, uh, occupation and torture, the kind of thing you never see in dance. Mm -hmm. And he really showed you the syndrome in dance that people go into when they suffer from torture. Meanwhile, video was showing you the other aspects of torture. So I raved about this. Mm -hmm. Um, He... And I think I once broke one of my own rules. I normally don't plug something that's coming, but I did say, he's got program two, it's coming up on Friday night. <laughs> Guess what? The theatre was even eight. It wasn't full the first time, it was empty of the second. One. I'm sure it's because the Times readers are thinking, doesn't sound like a good time. <laughs> we don't want to go to torture. Hmm. So, you know. But, uh, you know and I should, I should I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think certainly my first few years, I felt I had no effect on the ABT audience. Mm. I did straight away feel a connection with the City Valley audience. Strangers would just come up and talk to me. Mm. But at ABT, no. Uh, and it remains true that if ABT does a triple bill at the Met, it's not going to sell, and my review won't make a difference. Change. You know, I think you <clears throat> may have unwittingly played into the idea of your position as one of uh, being um, a powerful one because of your willingness to write these reviews that are on either end, very positive or, you know, honestly negative. Um, with Kisselgoff before, kind of, you know, uh, smoothing everything out and just basically trying to promote the art form, it had less weight. So then at a certain point, people became very eager, let's say, maybe desperate for a Positive Times review. <laughs> um, do you ha- Did you ever find dancers or choreographers uh, or directors reaching out to you um, about a specific review or maybe even sort of lobbying in a way? Well, occasionally people, and particularly at a junior fringe level, choreographers often are their own press people. Mm -hmm. So they'll drop you an email saying, really hope you can come and see my work. Um, 
I don't, I'm trying to think if everybody, you know, I mean, there are one or two times, and I hate it when a choreographer gets in touch about an important production. Twyla Tharp did quite a big number for her 50th anniversary as a choreographer. She did a big Trans-American tour. It began, I think, in Dallas. Now, I couldn't go to Dallas for whatever reason. I think I was on vacation. Um, look, I can say vacation. We in British say holiday. Um, <laughs> um, but she, I won't go through the details, but let's say she applied what pressure she could for me to be in a good mood uh, when I came to review it in uh, November when it came to the what I still call the State Theatre. I'm afraid I didn't like it I mean uh-huh. that was quite something um, you know I don't know I mean, Ratmansky does not drop me a line to say thank you for your kind review Justin Peck doesn't you know, that doesn't normally happen um, I've never met Pam Tanowitz um, interestingly uh, we knew we had friends in common and a friend I mentioned my friend David Vaughan he was dying and I had this huge email list of people I was just sending reports to on how he was doing. And she got on that list because through a mutual friend, he was very fond of her. I think at one point she just said, thanks for the news. Um, then she came to my Ashton Balanchine lecture, which I spoke to you about in January this year, and just dropped me an email just to say, I just loved uh, what you said. And by the way, you showed Sylvia Paddington by both Ashton Balanchine and I preferred Ashton, which is adorable. <laughs> And I think I laughingly said, if you come to do the two-year course on, I said the whole audience, <laughs> what I want to do an action balance, and she wrote saying, I'm signing up for your two-year course. <laughs> so that's sweet. Uh, I loved her four quartets at the beginning of this month, July. Last month, sorry. Um, August now. Quite rightly, she didn't write to me. But I was aware it made a big impact, this review. It wasn't just on the front page of the art section with a stunning photograph. They even put a smaller photograph on page A1. That's the front page wow. of the Times. Dance very seldom gets there, almost never gets there with a photograph. So this is, you know, in newspaper stuff, that's a big deal. Anyway, quite rightly, she didn't write to me about that. But then a week later, her father died. Uh, and somebody told me how close she was to her father. So I just thought, well, we've got each other's email address. So I just sent her a note of commiseration. And she just wrote back saying how much she loved her father, how she would meet him. He was a scientist. Uh, and they would talk about the, how, what science and the arts had in common. And she said, it does, does my heart good to know that one of the last times I saw him, he was reading your review in the Times of my new piece for Quartets. So I, that was a nice bit of communication that one doesn't normally have. Mm-hmm. So in a negative sense, I did have a really rather astonishing thing two months ago, and I suppose I'm not going to mention him, his name, but a principal dancer, male of one of the big New York companies, suddenly wrote to me. Uh, he hadn't even read the whole of my review, but he had seen the bit that was about him. It was passed around on social media, and he he didn't say, how dare you say this about me? Um, but... He he sort of said, "Do you really mean this? What do you say?" <laughs> the answer, you know, I've, I think I began straight away. This was done through texting, and I straight away said, "Please don't start this." Uh, kept on trying to calm him down, uh, and I had seen him actually since this review had come out doing a full length ballet. Well, so I said, "Please, I liked you last week in such and such a ballet." Um, he was not stopping, and then he jumped from saying why he thought ballet in New York was in a terrible state. Uh, at least he wasn't filling in theatres, there was too much trouble. And then he kind of obviously attributed this to me. 
And I thought straight, and the, the arts in New York are in a bad state. So I thought, oh, because I haven't given you the right review, despite the, you know, had you bothered, you would have seen, I've written rave reviews about some members of your own company, mm. blah, blah, blah. Uh, you're now assuming I am the reason why the arts and dance in New York are in a troubled state. I very nearly read the riot actum in a big way, mm. <laughs> managed to find something relatively calm mm. uh, and said, please don't reply. I don't blame That's you. That's a lot. That kind of... <laughs> so are you going to miss that? Say that? That kind of arrogance does not uh, occur often. Mm-hmm. Wow. But it was, I think, both arrogant and narcissistic. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's very unusual. Mm-hmm. What do you think dancers and maybe audiences as well most misunderstand about a critic's position? Um... Oh, I, I shouldn't generalize about the audio, mm. should they? Should well, we I, can focus on dancers then. Um, dancers and directors probably as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think they think that it's easy to write a review. Mm. Um, there are quite a few times I've spent twice as long writing a review as I was in the theater. Mm. You know, sometimes some reviews, it may look as if I write it easily, but and one or two you can write quickly, but uh sometimes it's taken three hours five hours to mm. write one or two pieces and i'm writing often thousand words at the new york times it's a lot of words can i interject i i'm curious now what makes it difficult to what what makes what it makes difficult a review difficult? why, why would why did it take so long sometimes you sit down thinking this is going to be a dog uh-huh. and five hours later you're still sweating it uh-huh. <laughs> um sometimes you just think i'm just not in the mood <laughs> no i don't know why i'm not hung over i should be fine <laughs> i remember once writing balanchine i think it was a quadruple bill was opening new york city ballet season somehow i just didn't feel inspired it was like pushing boulders uphill all the time and kept saying, I'm probably repeating myself, moaning all the time. It took three hours or more to write it. Uh, well, all right, I've done professional review, no inspiration in it. I have to say that was one of my most successful reviews. Oh, really? I, I could not believe it, but the, the emails that came in from people I knew, who knew me and strange strangers who just said this was one of your great reviews. And I thought, oh, I can't see it. So, what, <laughs> so what you I, can't tell. It's... Yeah. I mean, there there are reviews that we all, all critics, I think, say are easier or harder than others. Generally, it's easier to, it's better to rave about something than to hate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that means it's harder. It's easier to say why a dance is terrible. Mm-hmm. And you can have f- fun time blowing it out of the water if you're in that mood or just dismissing it sadly, whatever. That does not usually take a lot of time. One or two, you know, if, if I, I, for example... I'm opposed to most of the work of William Forsyth. Now, he means a lot to many people. Mm-hmm. So I think I really have to take time trying to word very carefully what I say about Forsyth. But some, you know, you just think, oh, that's, you know, a minor choreographer, get it over and done with. Um, explaining why you love a work is really why you're in the job. Mm-hmm. For example, this last masterpiece I reviewed, Pantanowitz's Four Quartets. You know, I was so excited to have something that's fabulous to write about. I partly also sat there thinking, I'm having to do this by 10 o'clock in the morning. Actually, I think it was 9 o'clock in the morning because I had an early train from upstate uh, to get me back to New York. After the Saturday night performance, I really would like another day to write this to you. I took so many notes, and I haven't had time to go through the notes in any detail whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's about a very complicated T.S. Eliot poem. Um, 
so that's a hard review to write, but also you think, well, I don't know. I'm, I really felt a sense of failure while I was writing this. I'm not worthy of this dance. This is a beautiful dance. I don't think I'm really grasping what it's about. Again, that's one of the reviews that actually it make the, the, the audience is thrilled with it. Right. You know? I'm I'm still nervous about whether anybody will agree with me. Um, actually, I don't mean that because. In the days that followed, I, there were so many just ordinary members of the public who just said this was great. Oh, and now we realize the New York Times agrees with us. Mm-hmm. So, so I think, I think I was. Everybody was just wowed by that piece. Mm-hmm. That's why you the hardest. But I'm still in the. It's on the in the middle that I. We all find it's really hard to review. Fall for dance because you get four different companies doing four different styles and if you've got a bad evening where you feel meh about everything not hating them just mm, <laughs> that's a hard review mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense <laughs> and, and I suppose I'm, I'm jumping but the opposite kind of thing is say if you're writing about Balanchine or Ashton or any the great choreographers and they're no longer alive so you do know a thing or two mm-hmm. now sometimes as the example I just gave you Balanchine it's hard work but it is that is one of the pleasures of my job that I've now reached the age of 63. Um, I've been a critic for 40 years. And occasionally you just think, I am bringing all of my experience of Balanchine, Ashton, Cunningham, uh, Taylor, other people. And that's the thrill. And sometimes, often enough, that works for readers. You know? Going back to Forsyth for a second, do you have... Um, can you think of times when you have an artist like that that you respect because they are admired but maybe you don't personally understand, but then you see an individual performance or ballet where you can kind of get a glimpse into what other people are saying. Has that happened for you? Yeah, but I'm afraid it often makes me more argumentative. Ah. You know, I mean, Forsyth normally gets wild performances. You can see why dancers love doing it. Mm. I think I've always seen why, dan- why audiences enjoy his work. I'm afraid that makes me more. <laughs> I've got to explain. I'm not saying I'm writing, mm. say, but I have to get my point of view clear. Right. And quite often I try to find a way of saying, you know, this is what I see, this is how I feel. Mm. It is getting standing ovations, you know. Uh, I think when I was a theatre critic, I learned to do that about musicals. You know, so, uh, there is no musical when it's having its premiere in particular that the audience doesn't stand, stand for. Oh, yeah. And when I was first doing it, I was like, how am I going to pluck the courage up to say this Lloyd Webber musical stinks? <laughs> <laughs> you do. Yeah. Uh, and gradually you learn that, you know. Right. Even if you are the only person in the audience, you've got to say it. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I just I keep I keep thinking of things as we I go along. Is it? So okay. Going. Well, this is a kind of a subject change too, I guess. But I, you. Um, I have a few subject changes too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you're talking about, for instance, uh, that bouncing uh, triple bill or what whatnot that you wrote that got such a positive response, and people were saying it's one of your greatest. But you disagree. What are some of your greatest? What are some of the, the articles that you feel proudest of that you've written? Oh, goodness. Um, Good one. I liked it. Oh, I think I, I, was, I was thrilled to write about almost everything that Mass Cunningham did in this job because I'd been, I, I am writing a book on Mass Cunningham and I'd been at work on it for maybe 15 years before I took this job. Uh, I was a bit apprehensive, therefore, to be in New York for his last the last two years of his life. Um, but as it happened, I loved the new pieces he made. I loved the revivals. And something about the context of the time is getting a lot of words. 
again, I knew the terrain. So I think I wrote really well on Cunningham mm-hmm. and often wrote a different kind of angle each time. Mm-hmm. So I remember Carolyn Brown, who was his partner for 20 years and had written her own Cunningham book, just wrote, there was one I was particularly talking about love in Cunningham, which is something nobody ever sees in Cunningham. Mm-hmm. And she was so thrilled and she just wrote saying, you know, this, this is the, what I've always wanted somebody write, writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it was when he died or after the company closed two years later she again wrote just saying you've done so much for this company so i was very thrilled that's wonderful is there um i'm very i jump i'm very proud of what i've written about indian dance Mm. and that was not a comfort zone for me i had only written about indian dance once twice before i took this job i knew loved indian classical Mm -hmm. dance and i had started to see how many forms there are Mm -hmm. but the right event came along in my first summer, and it's during the quiet period of August. So this time's giving me a wonderful front page spread on the art section. Of course, Indian arts and those costumes look so great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that went down the right way. From then on, I thought, oh, this is one of my areas. And mm-hmm. I really pursued it. And I've been to India twice and traveled around, and I would love to go again. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Is there anything, um, any statement or any observation that you've made that you wish you could take back and that you regret? <laughs> Well, quite a lot, and sometimes it's mm. just a comma or whatever, and nobody else spots <laughs> the trouble. But of course, my most notorious one is, and this connects to one of my greatest prides, actually. Uh, in the end of 2010, I did the Nutcracker Marathon, mm. and I'd been planning this. I'd really wanted to do it the year before, um, and I couldn't do the year before because I was suddenly diagnosed with prostate cancer, which was my prostate was removed. Once I was well again, I, next year I was saying, right, I'm ready to do the Nutcracker Marathon. <laughs> uh, we didn't call it the marathon at first. But the Times was really into it, and so we, I think I saw 28 productions of The Nutcracker between mid-November and New Year's Eve, uh, and wrote about just about all of them, and did a weekly essay on what new aspects of The Nutcracker I'd been finding. Um, And that was a thrill, but very early on in this adventure, uh, I wrote the notorious review, well, actually, what the whole rest of you I'm really proud of. I was mm-hmm. Balanchine's Nutcracker, mm-hmm. 17 paragraphs, I think, which I'm very pleased with. One paragraph in which I referred to the dancer's weight. And this was Jennifer Ringer and Jared Angle. Um, and with Jared Angle, who I think everybody could see was overweight, uh, one of the world's greatest partners mensch of a man but he suddenly ballooned between the waist and the knee and wearing those white shining white tights uh and my phrase for him was something like he seemed to have been sampling half the sweet kingdom um the curious thing about jennifer ringer and this was my notorious statement is that actually i very nearly didn't mention her weight uh but at the end of the paradeur somebody audibly very near me in the in the darkness of the theater just said god they're fat and when I left the theatre with my friend, who's uh, my companion, I won't name her, but um, but we're very good friends, I said, you know, what do you think about God, they're fat? Uh, and my friend said, oh, yes, they both were. So I think we probably talked some more. I can't remember the details. But when I was then writing the review, which I wrote in Seattle, I wrote in Seattle <laughs> yesterday, wrote the review, uh, and that's why I put in this phrase, um, she, uh, she seemed to have eaten one sugar plum too many which I really just did as, how big is a sugar plum? But, you know, a little bit. And I did think of, you know, when I thought about it, yes, okay, she's a little bit heavy under the upper arm, a little bit heavy. That's a very high cut tutu on the upper thigh. That's what I meant. Um, as you know, this called, well, you don't know how much chaos it <laughs> It went ballistic. It went, as they say, viral. Um, an ex-boyfriend of mine emailed me from Sydney, Australia, to say, 
I was having a quiet evening at home in front of the TV when suddenly your face popped up on primetime news. <laughs> that really made my jaw drop. Uh, you know, I was invited on the TV program that Jennifer Ringer did appear on, and I just chose to play it cool and let mm-hmm. everybody else throw it up, and I didn't reply to anything that anybody said. Mm-hmm. Um, I did do a piece in The Times talking about how I think critics are entitled to talk about weight. I think you're talking about bodies, and I'm afraid that's part of the area. That has now changed to some, because that caused such a huge furore, uh, one sugar plum too many, that I think the Times would not like anybody to talk about weight anymore. Curiously, I talked three times about men being overweight in the Times. Nobody's, frankly, none of the storm was about Jared Angle, though I was much more severe about him. And I met him a few times, and he's the nicest, most level-headed man. Um, I had reviewed Mark Morris, maybe not in the Times, before I took this job, I was saying he's obese. And Mark Morris is a very big man. He's a great dancer. And I think I said he's the greatest seriously overweight dancer I've ever seen. I used the word obese once about him. And I also said it about Nilas Martins. I think I used the word portly of him. And he was extremely overweight. If you do this about a man, no fuss. It's to do with a woman even if the phrase is just one sugar plum too many. Mm-hmm. And I think now, after all these years, of course I understand it. And I'm sorry in a way that I was at the middle of the furor, but I'm glad actually the furor happened. I've come round a long way. And in a way, I've come back to where I always was. The truth is, in my 20s, I shared a flat with a girl who went through anorexia. Mm-hmm. And the next year, I moved in when I was 30 for about five years with two uh, women friends, uh, one of whom was really obese and had to deal with obesity. She was addressing it, but it's Mm -hmm. something you don't get around in a hurry. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I do know about what women go through, and it's a much bigger thing at either extreme Mm -hmm. for women. Mm -hmm. Um, I I didn't know anything about Jennifer Ringer's history with weight anyway. We now know much more about that. So I'm sorry that I got... I didn't see what was said on television or the radio or whatever. Um, I did read every reader email. And they came in at the most phenomenal rate. And some of them truly obscene. Some of them, I think, had never read what I'd written anyway. Mm-hmm. But it was extraordinary to get the violence of feeling. And, of course, a few people writing saying, I'm glad you said it. They were, you got it from every angle. Mm-hmm. But mainly it was very negative. Mm-hmm. What was that time like for you dealing with? Five weeks long, uh, I mean, went on right to the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just try to keep your head low at one point. And I thought I was going to get death threats. <laughs> it was tough. Yeah, uh, can imagine. Do love something to hate, and I was mm-hmm. the person to hate for that while. Um, but never mind. You know, I've I've come through. I've done how many more years? Eight years or something since then in this job, and I think we've come through. Um, and I've done plenty to that. I've I've gone back to reviewing the Nutcracker and so forth. That's all fine. Uh, and I think. Perhaps everybody has learnt that you just don't talk about women's bodies that way anymore. Well, not everyone. The recent review of the Broadway show Head Over Heels, that's gotten a lot of uh, attention. Have you not heard about was that? Was that the Ben Brantley review? Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't, I, amid I didn't, much that was controversial in that review, I didn't mm-hmm. take in the weight issue. I didn't I'm amazed they allowed him to if that was the case, because occasionally I have... I've now, if you look at my reviews, I have touched on weight occasionally, but mm-hmm. I'm not, you now find euphemisms. Right. Uh, and that's as near as you get. Mm-hmm. You know, you just say, so and so looked out of shape. Mm-hmm. That means that ballerina that's is. The code. <laughs> we know that's the code word. We've heard that one before. <laughs> that's, how, that's how artistic staff can deal with the dancers, too. You look out of shape. That's better than your OPs. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> that's true. Um, I guess that's true. 
No, it's strange. I mean, I don't know Jennifer Ingham, never met her, and I haven't yet read the autobiography. Everybody says she's the nicest woman. So, you know, good. I'm glad she is, and I'm, I'm glad she handled it grace, gracefully. Um, I have met Jared Angle. I'm told, I've never dared ask him this, <laughs> but somebody at City Ballet, you know, who works with the company, told me that at the time, Jared said, I want to write my autobiography, and it's going to be called I Was Fat Too. <laughs> <laughs> But that, whether that's true or not, well, I can tell you this is a very Jared Angle remark. He has the most mm. wonderful self-deprecating mm-hmm. humour. We love Jared. Uh, yeah, we do. Uh, so mm. we've moved on altogether. And I'm never mind that I was the one who said the wrong remark at the time. I'm glad that the world is changing. Mm. And we all learn that. You know. I think it's true of my generation with so many people. There are th- little remarks that you made when you were in your 20s that were not racist then, but you now just gradually learn mm-hmm. You don't say that anymore. It right. really is more insensitive these days. And sometimes it's just a word like, you know, when I came here, we in Britain people still talk about Afro-Caribbean. When you moved here, I talked about Afro-American and got corrected very quickly. I wish I'd actually been corrected sooner, but it is offensive to most people here to say Afro-Americans. Um, if I said that back in England, nobody would bat an eyelid. Mm-hmm. Afro-Caribbean is the standard term used by Afro-Caribbeans. Right. Um, you know, you just learn tact bit by bit, mm-hmm. and we all do it. I don't know how much you two, who are 30 years younger than me, have been aware that you've had to edit yourselves over the years. But I think, I think, so. I think we all do, and I think we all should. That's the way mm-hmm. of being good citizens of the world. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, oh, going on to other things I've done, I, I'm going to blow my trumpet. Do it. Uh, <laughs> we're here for Something I began doing, and I would love to do more of if I was in this job for longer, and if I was younger, is traveling to look at forms of hip-hop around the States. And the thing that electrified me, first of all, is Jukin in Memphis. Mm-hmm. It's, of course, famous enough for Little Buck, but actually what you have to go is to see it there, mm-hmm. when it's being done in a small hall with night that's mainly men, and they get up in their sneakers onto point, and they do runs on point, they do pirouettes on point, they do balances on point. And it's not a gay thing at all, because <laughs> girls also do it, but they don't have the same kind of footwork. They do terrifying things with their ankles. Oh, God. I, when Rebecca, you can see it on YouTube, but you should see it live. I have to mm. look away. Sometimes. And you know, it, it is so musical. Mm-hmm. You're, I remember the last time I was there, I thought, I'm so much the whitest, I'm so much the oldest, <laughs> I'm so much the status person. I'm sitting here for eight and a half hours in this room in Memphis, uh, listening to rap music of an obscenity not to be described. I can't repeat any of these words in the New York Times because the New York Times has its decency rules. <laughs> and yet, and it's not my kind of music and it's loud. Uh, and I'm just loving it because they are drawing me into the music. Mm-hmm. Such fun taking risks. And I think the same summer I also went to Detroit to look at their kind of hip hop, which is you, you can't do it for the length of time that you can do with Jukin uh, because it's still with explosive jumps off the floor. So doing quick, quick jumps. But while you're watching it, these short dances, it is like sparks flying. And they are. They're just taking off. Uh, and there are forms of, I believe, good uh, local um, hip-hop to be found in San Francisco, like Taffin and Chicago, Chicago footwork. Mm-hmm. I wish I had time to go and explore more of that. Yeah. I would love also, if one could, to find the right Native American dances. A friend of mine wrote to me from New Mexico about a harvest dance I think he'd seen there. But mm-hmm. I thought he's seeing it in June, which is on the heart busiest times in yeah. New <laughs> <laughs> It's a nice way to leave a job, this, thinking there's so Why? much more. Yeah, it's true. So what do you hope that readers took away from your time uh, as the chief dance critic? 
Well, part of it is we've touched on, which is to be tough on the subject and not flatter it by mollycoddling it in mm-hmm. kindness. Um, I hope I've been good at being bringing in lots of context. That's what readers always seem to come when we do learn mm-hmm. from you. So that's nice. I'm a, I don't like the idea, though, of being a critic being a teacher. In some mm. ways, I know people do learn from my reviews, but I, I, I'm not the professor. In mm-hmm. sense. I'm just talking about what I see and what things I know about Sleeping Beauty or whatever. You know, you can interpret that ballet differently. Mm. But what you're there, to, you're there to help stimulate thought in the reader. Mm-hmm. And if they then are stimulated and disagree, that's just as good. Right. Um, what else do I think? I think because I've just covered as many what kinds of dance as I can. I hope... It does bother me when some people say, oh, I read everything you say, and then it turns out what they mean is they read all my ballet reviews. They mm-hmm. don't look at anything. Sure. Mm-hmm. They just remember there's much great dancing elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there one piece of advice that you could give to your successor who's yet to be named? Oh, have fun. <laughs> really. I mean, in a serious way, just enjoy as much as you can. Work at first as hard as you can. You know, you can't do that forever. But believe me, I threw myself on the job. I didn't think I... That's a surprise. When I took this job, I thought, oh, it's going to be easy. I'd been a full-time theatre critic in London. And I remember the New York scene when it was, I believe, busier in the late 80s, early 90s when I was working at the New Yorker. Um, So I thought, you know, this is the job for my late middle age. I'm not going to have to work so hard. Um, But of course, I took the job and then there were all these press releases coming in. And I just thought, well whether it's good or not, there are all these companies I've never seen. Mm-hmm. And I reviewed some of them, but then I went to see the others in my spare time. That was just a hard work thing. And and it was exciting for me to realize, A, there was so much more than I'd anticipated to see. And guess what? Over the months I started thinking, having originally said on the phone, do you, or no, on the email, do you know how many severe, severe reviews I'm going to write? I didn't write nearly as many severe reviews as I thought I was going to. I found myself just in love with so many kinds of dance. Right. You know, I think some companies have improved what I've been here. City Ballet was in the doldrums when I arrived. And to watch the ascent of a Sarah Manns and a Tyler Peck and a Teresa Reichland through the ranks was really exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know I wasn't alone there. Lots mm-hmm. of people in that audience who just felt that the whole scene was changing. And then to have choreographers arriving, you know, the scene. Wielden was already around, but uh, Ratmansky wasn't. He was already in the jo- the, around when I took the job, but he was in Russia. Suddenly he moved here mm-hmm. a year after I did, or two years, a year and a half. And then Justin Peck came out of the blue and Pantanowitz and so forth. So that's been fabulous to discover all those people. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of me is thinking, why am I giving up this job so much? I do enjoy about it. And I hope I'll be around to look at plenty of it. I just don't want to write at this rhythm anymore. Mm -hmm. So last question before we get to a lightning round that I'm personally excited for. We know it's your favorite. I have the wrong mind for it. Yeah. Um, But can you tell us a little bit about projects you think you might have time for now that you'll be pursuing more? Well, staying home at nights is a very nice project. <laughs> Early bed is a nice project. Seeing friends is a nice project. I, above all, I do want to spend more time in England. I, I have always been homesick in this job. Uh, you know, New York's a great city, but I have, you know, my my friends and family in England. Mm-hmm. Um, ideally, I'd commute between the two cities, and economically, I have no clue if I'll ever be able to bring that off. So we will see. Um, 
I've got at least 22 books I want to write. Uh, of course, I want to write a Nutcracker book, because mm. I've really done the spade work there. Mm. Uh, I do want to write an Ashton Balanchine book. I wouldn't mind writing a Serenade book. So these are just subjects I've spoken to about mm. previously on other podcasts. Um, I'd love to do one, this is something the Times got me doing, on the statues and paintings by Degas, the ballet paintings. Mm-hmm. I think particularly about He also did do Russian folk dance and other things too, but particularly ballet. Lots of art historians have written about Degas. Um, it's not Degas, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> peasant Macaulay speaks. Um, uh, something almost nobody dares to discuss, though I have in the Times, is that actually if you look at those statuettes where he shows you a Ponche Arabesque, it's nothing like anybody's Ponche Arabesque nowadays. Mm-hmm. The waist is different. Yeah, sure. uh, so I think a dance person should be writing about these statues mm-hmm. and paintings. And there's so much he is saying about dance. And I think mainly he's a very acute realist and he's showing you how they were dancing in mm-hmm. those days. But I think, say, there are three different kinds of Ponche Arabesque he did in uh, his statuettes. Um, he wasn't sculpting the best dancers in the world, so he's showing you where their stomachs sag a little bit. Uh-huh. But he's also showing you, I believe, the absolute line that they were trying for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating, because truly you take a dancer to look at them now and think, why is her back down there? That's, mm-hmm. They can't get... Right, right. It's like yeah. a moment in time. All right, here it is, your lightning round. Uh, <laughs> oh, projects, I've got to finish my Cunningham book. Probably. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, we figured that one. <laughs> All right, so first one is most memorable performance in your time as chief dance critic. Oh, my goodness. We'll give you a few. Yeah. Well, I suppose my mind flies straight to the closing events of the Merce Cunningham Company at the Park Avenue Armory. Now, those are on DVD, so you can check it out. Um, but it was a very great event. Uh, sorry, that's a pun, but, but, but if you know about Cunningham, the, Cunningham himself, he would organize anthology of his, anthologies of his own choreography that were just done as events with a capital E. And they mm. did six of them uh, to end the company's lifetime at the end of 2011. A lot of us were there with very powerful emotion. And it really went out in just the way you wanted that mm-hmm. you thought this shows not just that this is beautiful dancing, but this is a kind of dance theater yeah. that has been great. It's been as great as Samuel Beckett or Harold Pinter or Mozart or Haydn. Mm-hmm. It's up there mm-hmm. in some line. And now, um, who knows? Maybe prodded by the New York Times, the place is full and everybody's cheering their head off. Mm-hmm. I remember days when people would walk out of every mass cunning and performance. They weren't mm-hmm. ready for it. Mm-hmm. Now that audience was ready and the dancers were fabulous. Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, what's been? What has been the biggest individual breakthrough you've witnessed? Ooh. Um, how does one word it? Choreographic breakthrough? I'm sorry to mentioned the same subject again but I did not know a Pantanowitz had a four quartets in her mm-hmm. she's wonderful but normally she seemed to me wonderful minor there's something I thought a little campy funny jolly about her you know you you praise and pat on the head in a slightly condescending way uh, I don't think I'm, I'm exaggerating but four quartets is large spirited it's big it 
it's important. I never knew she was going to go there. That's mm. thrilling. I'm sure I felt that about successive pieces by Ratmansky, mm-hmm. climaxing with Serenade after Plato's Symposium, which you may not have seen, but it's I've just not, been danced in there just yet. before we arrived in Like there. two days before. What a, what a shame. Yeah, yeah. we saw it first. <laughs> <You know>? um, <laughs> I now have a few reservations about Sarah Manns, but how amazing to watch her coming up and show the blaze of which she has been capable. Um, same thing with Tyler Peck. You know, that's amazing. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think before I took this job, I had no idea that there was an Herman Cornejo in the world. And I think this is a genius dancer. And I don't throw the word genius about lightly. Mm. I don't know where he gets it from. You know, it's, you and I can work out why somebody can do balancing well, because there's lots of balancing in the world, or Robbins. I can't quite work out why he walked into the role of Puck in Ashton's The Dream and was straight away the greatest Puck I'd ever seen because there's not a lot of Ashton around. Mm -hmm. But what I really can't work out is how he walked into that horrible ballet by Massine, Gaité Parisienne. I mean, I've seen more of Massine than most people because I've been going to ballet for 40 years. Gaité is the worst Massine ballet. (laughs) ABT insists on reviving it uh, with horrible designs by Christian Lacroix, which I think trivializes the whole thing. And meanwhile, I'm sitting there thinking, well, 40 years ago, I just caught the tail end of what used to be called Messine style, mm-hmm. which was already rare 40 years ago. That's to do with what used to be called demi-character dancing of a certain kind of rather cartoonish, overbright, feverish characterization. Well, in walks Cornejo, only does it maybe once, and he does the Peruvian in data Parisian with this kind of slightly manic quality. I thought, where did you get this from? I don't even know if he'll do it again. But he's one of those people, I believe Nijinsky was like this, who can, and of course Brezhnikov, where they somehow are onto the style from instinct. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. What's the most difficult review you've had to write? Well, I've been telling you about all the most difficult <laughs> reviews, haven't I? Uh, um, you're probably meaning, you know, the, the reviews one regrets having to write because it's a difficult time. Yeah. Um, do you know any suggestions? Uh, um, it's always just, I don't think this is the most difficult. It's tricky if you are known as the person who raves about an mm-hmm. artist and you have to state a big reservation. This mm-hmm. was just not a good piece. Right. I think I've had to do that a lot about Mark Morris, um, whose career I suppose I've followed for over 30 years. He's done a lot of disappointing works, you know. It's no fun saying it, yeah. and every, every so often, of course, you then recognize, and he, the word genius, Mark Morris, is capable of genius, again, mm-hmm. that word. So to see a disappointing genius is such a strange thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just hard to interact that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, got any suggestions for which would be my hardest review? Though? No. <laughs> I think you, you lined that, Those make sense to me. Yeah. Easily. I don't know that those are hardest, they're so much as saddest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just don't enjoy saying this thing. Yeah. Well, what is the thing that you'll miss most about the job? Oh, well, probably the reason why I took the job, the readers. Mm. You know, it's amazing. Um, You get a response from this job that was beyond even what I was anticipating. You were with me the other night when (laughs) we were just standing outside waiting for our lift back to Vale. And this couple, who I've never met before, just came up and said, are you Alistair McCauley? We read everything you write, blah, blah, blah. And they're sure they proved it by bringing out this feature that I'd written about Devin Tusha and Isabella Boyle. It was in his pocket. He had, he had cut it out and folded it and put it in his pocket. It had notes on it. 
He'd written <laughs> on I it. Didn't see the notes. I think he had written on it, yeah. No, that's very touching. And there are, I've had some amazing uh, readership, really. And people, you know, uh, of, of, of wide variety. Um, Francie Russell, who was the director of Pacific North West Ballet for years, just, I'd already met her, but the first time we really saw each other in Seattle. And she wasn't in the job anymore. She just said straight away, I just have to let you know that I'm so jealous of Peter Bowe because you and I come out to Seattle at least once a year. And when I was running the company with my husband, uh, Kent, we did everything to try to get the New York Times to come out. So mm. now you're coming out and you're loving the company. Perfect that you do. But then she said, and I read everything you write. And she said, I really can feel the wheels in your mind turning. You're mm. really making the thought process. You're taking your read. And I, that was a very big compliment because that's what I do try to do. Is to, I'm thinking things through and I mm. try to take the reader into that. So I was thrilled with that. Another reader was a man in Mexico City. And he, just, he wrote to me quite early on. It's called Jorge. Uh, and Jorge Tijerina, uh, <laughs> and he's great. He just writes. I, I'm English is my second language, so I've been reading the New York Times for years because it improves my English. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you arrive in the job, uh, you're the first thing I turn to every day. And he said, I'm not a dancer, and I don't get to dance performances. There isn't a lot of dance to see here in Mexico, but I think I'd have been a great dancer. I think I'd have loved doing it. <laughs> uh, so cute and. And then we just correspond, and I realized he really remembers my reviews. He wow. can quote them back at me, you know. So kidding. that's going from the range of someone like that to someone like Francie Russell, and there'd been many people in between. That's thrilling. Mm-hmm. Is there one person in particular who you um, shied away from being in contact with because of your job, who you're interested to maybe make a connection with now? Ooh. Tap on that door. Come talk. Come out and play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now you're free to do whatever. Um. I don't know. I don't know. No, I can't think of the answer to that. I'm sure there are people I would just want to... How can I put it? To mix with and just relax. When the, the, the climate was very different when I went to India. You In India, they do schmooze. And I was really shocked my first night. I arrived straight off the plane from Delhi, dumped my suitcases, went to see a performance by the great... Uh, Katak dancer Birju Maharaj, a true master. Uh, and Ma- um, Katak is the kind of fastest footwork. And there he was, Berthing, doing jazz effects, improvising with this band. And I was sitting with the leading daily critic. And then when it was over, this daily critic took me to the dressing room to meet Birju Maharaj. And I thought, this is not done. I should not be taken right. next day. Uh. I, I, I had to because I didn't know where else to go in Delhi. Uh, um, and all of India was like that. You ended up meeting people. I did right. keep some distance in some cases. Right. But for example, I had four enchanting days at Nrityagram. Now, Nrityagram is the village in near Bangalore, which is really a sort of dance village. And these women specialize in the Odissi style. And I lived in a hut in their village wow. uh, for a few days. And I could just go to them in my spare time, ask them about things of Odissi. And I just learned so much. Mm-hmm. Now, that is the kind of intimacy you one doesn't normally get. If I could now pursue that in London and New York a bit more, that would be lovely. Because, you you know, I've got the questions to ask. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so the, much. The Helen. three of us have to get to the ballet now. Yeah. So thank you for, for the interview. And thank I'm you. sure. And you know I wish you all the best, and I hope to come back. And I are. think you will be back. Yeah. You and, better be. Yeah, thank you for being such a great supporter. <laughs> you have more time for us. How dare you not list that amongst your things that you're, <laughs> <laughs> you're looking forward to? I am very proud of my achievements on your podcast. <laughs> that, that is true. <laughs> thank you so much, thank Alistair. Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope that you take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where we are always posting unique content in honor of each week's guest. And click over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Those five stars really go a long way in helping us continue to grow the podcast and our brand. See you next week on Conversations on Dance. We wanted to take a minute to talk about a wonderful new project run by friend of the pod, Janie Taylor. Janie has long impressed with a diverse range of talents, whether it's her indelible impression as a New York City Ballet principal, her sleek costume designs for many new works, or her stagings of ballets from today's most sought-after choreographers. With her latest project, Quartermarks, Janie adds art curator to her list of considerable talents. Quartermarks is a quarterly publication of artwork printed on newsprint, offering a tangible experience meant to bring a sense of discovery, beauty, and joy into the lives of its readers. This newspaper was created in an effort to provide a momentary escape with a collection of beautiful artwork from varying artists in each issue. Readers are encouraged to share and reuse this paper in creative ways. Quartermarks is available by single volume or one-year subscription. To subscribe, check out the website, quartermarksquarterly.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.